This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce Simon Sharma, University Professor of Art History and History at Columbia University, who will be delivering tonight the Stanford Presidential Lecture in Humanities and the Arts, entitled The Abolition of the Slave Trade 200 Years On, America and Britain, Two Diverging Destinies. This expands upon some of the themes of his book, Rough Crossings, that was published in the United States last year. This is also a unique pleasure for me not only because Simon Schama is one of the most eminent, well-known, and widely admired historians of our age, but he was also my mentor at Harvard when I was a graduate student a long, long time ago, longer than either one of us would now care to admit. Indeed, as a historian for whom such sleuthing in documents matter, I can take pride in the fact that I was his first student in the United States whose dissertation papers he signed. A truly historic moment, I'm sure, as we can both agree. <laughs> My first introduction to Simon Sharma as a graduate student was not only as a great admirer of his books. I was also his teaching assistant in his Europe in the 19th century lecture course at Harvard. And it was indeed in this course that I first ever gave my first lecture to undergraduates, besides leading section discussions. Imagine a brilliant, utterly charismatic professor enthralling the class in a firework virtuoso performance of deep learning and dazzling skills in rhetoric without looking at a single note, getting a standing ovation from the students at the end of each lecture, and an awkward graduate student making his fledgling appearance onto the stage of lecturing. It was daunting to say the least. I dare say I managed to survive to tell the tale, but the referent, the bar, an impossible one of effective lecturing was set for me forever by Simon. What was evident in those lectures were the characteristics that we can identify in all of Simon Sharma's work. A deep, deep passion for the past. A story told superbly. The regaling in the detail. A pointillist technique of building an overall narrative of the whole through the illumination of the specific and the distinctive. The usage of what appears to be an excursus whose winding path leads suddenly to a flash of understanding, an understanding that is almost enchanted. His 13 books translated into 15 languages, and I will cite here only some titles, The Embarrassment of Riches, Citizens, Landscape and Memory, Rembrandt's Eyes, Rough Crossings, Simon Sharma has sought to not only explore with deep erudition different episodes in history and art, but he has also brought an immediacy to our encounter with the past and indeed with the story. For he is indeed a master storyteller whose skills have been widely recognized and acclaimed not only by the reception of his books, but also his hugely popular television series, A History of Britain, that was aired on the BBC in 2000 and then in the United States, which then were accompanied by three volumes under the same title. 
In 2006, he returned to artistry with another television series, Simon Sharma's Power of Art, examining eight artists through their work, which was again aired first in the BBC and then in the United States. Reaching millions through his books and television productions, Simon Sharma has become a household name, and his achievements have been widely recognized by many prizes and honors. He was made a commander of the British Empire in 2001. In 1991, Simon Sharma wrote an extraordinary essay in the New York Times Magazine entitled, Clio Has a Problem. He bemoaned the increasingly technocratic nature of academic historical writing, the abandonment of the public by the professionalized historian writing in alarmingly pedantic ways in the quest for a science of history addressing a select few, and the ensuing vacuum left, which was being filled by the historical novelist and the journalist. He's been at the forefront of the battle to bring back narrative into history, the art of storytelling accessible to everyone, whether it is through his numerous publications or his television productions that engage the public in deep ways with the past. In his words, written in another essay, Fine Cutting History, commenting on his television work, the task at hand is for him, I quote him, to move history back into the common public culture where it rightly belongs and without, I think, compromising our obligation to honor history's commitment to thought as well as imagination, end of quote. Simon Sharma is the prime representative of the school of historians that conceives of history writing as an art, as deeply connected to literature, and most decidedly not as a social science. He throws the gauntlet to us all to make history relevant again, not only to understand the world we live in, which of course is a platitude, but in his words again, to bring the past and the present into vivid communication, to explore what it is to be human through the power of the reader to live within vanished moments. He follows and resurrects superbly the now almost lost grand tradition of historians such as Gibbon, Macaulay, Carlyle, Jules Michelet, whose supreme skills were to render on a large canvas their passionate vision, as perceived through their eyes, of history unfolding in grand narratives. They were, and he is, the direct descendants of the practitioners of the medieval art of rhetoric, which once included history. At the end of his 1991 essay, Simon Sharma commented, I quote, more modestly we may, perhaps, hope for some grand narrative that will recall the time described by Macaulay when the appearance of a new history, of a new history was so exciting that the circulating libraries are mobbed, the book societies are in commotion, the new novel lies uncut. The libraries, real and virtual, are indeed mobbed, there is commotion across the media. Clio can rest reassured. Simon Sharma has come to the rescue. Thank you. Blimey, I thought I was just going to give a lecture. <laughs>
But it seems I'm going to carry the burden of the survival of history on my shoulders. Fine! If the Red Sox can win the World Series, what the hell can its most improbable fan not do? Um, thank you so much for that moving introduction, Aaron. Um, and I remember vividly also um, the, the pleasure of not really mentoring. You didn't need mentoring at all, of course, actually. I do remember um, that first course we really taught together. And I remember one thing you said to me. My, I was so naive, really, about teaching in the United States at that point. He said, um, I think we probably, because the, the course did roam somewhat from... Um, you know, Milan to Inverness and back again, said, we probably better have a map test. I said, oh, map test, you know. And said, yeah, I think we, we better had. Uh, Harvard doesn't matter. And I'd given a lecture on the revolutions of 1830, remember, in which the words Poland and Belgium both occurred because, in fact, they both had trouble in that particular year. <laughs> and Aaron said, just get them to, you know, approximate. And it was amazing what large percent of the students thought they shared a common frontier, actually. Was, you know, Poland and, you know, Krakow and Antwerp were really right bang next door, actually. And I thought, well, maybe they should be, actually, in some peculiar way. So when was it exactly during the bicentennial commemorations of the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire that I became aware just how much had changed in Britain, how much the furious, unmissable issue of race had entered the cultural bloodstream, how much had it become impossible to talk about British nationality without it. Maybe it was when Ghanaian Memnon horns alerting villagers to the imminence of a slave raid sounded from atop the choir screen in Westminster Abbey during an anniversary service on March the 26th this year. Or maybe it was a little later that morning when a young black militant writer dressed spectacularly in African robes harangued the queen in the choir itself, the monarch rather grandly suffering the shouting for a full four minutes before the protester was strong-armed out of the abbey. There was a friend of mine who was nearer the action, I, of course, was with the hoi polloi in the nave, claimed a, a perceptible clutching of the royal handbag during the outburst. <laughs> but not a lot more than that. And I thought to myself, when we were sitting there hearing this tremendous storm of noise, right, try that in Washington, D.C., and see what happens, you know, and um, wouldn't quite have gone on in the same way. After the service, I asked Kate Davson, who is direct descendant of William Wilberforce, what she, and who'd read one of his speeches, the great speech to the House of Commons in 1792, what she thought of the incident. And she said with incredible kind of lofty sweetness, oh, I do so understand. It was very uh, disconcerting because actually she looked almost exactly like William Wilberforce still. She said, I... I do so understand the pain never goes away, does it? And I thought, that's, you know, Wilberforce for you, Christian sweetness to the end. Or was it when I, the lapsed Jew, in yet another unlikely ecclesiastical locale, found myself standing in the pulpit of All Saints Church, Fulham, on the invitation of its parish vicar, Joe Hawes, who decided 194 years on, after the burial of the first great abolitionist, Granville Sharp, to give him the church funeral he'd been denied by the parish priest of the day in 1813. 
there had apparently been a tiff, no love lost, between Sharp and his parish vicar. The latter, suspecting the former of dissenting, dangerous dissenting views about the liturgy, even while Sharp claimed to profess allegiance to the Church of England, the Episcopalian Church. In expectation of Sharp's death, there had been a testy exchange about the precise form of words to be used in the service and who was to deliver the obsequies. I thought, well, you know, very odd coming to me. It's sort of Episcopalian version of a Talmudic pilpul. Was I supposed to arbitrate this strange and esoteric bickering many years ago? But Reverend Horse said, no, why didn't you come and deliver not the formal eulogy, but an essay from the pulpit about Sharp, and I was happy to do that. Because the original priest had just actually allowed a few summary words in the churchyard by the gravesite. To that priest in 1813, to his intense exasperation, all of abolitionist London had come, nonetheless, black and white. So the service this year, in 2007, was an act of reparation for that churlish affront. The eulogist was the aforesaid Jew, me, the congregation again, as about ethnically mixed as you can imagine. Among them, again, being members of the Sharp family themselves, again, looking pretty much exactly like their forebears. How tenaciously inbred these British heroes are. <laughs> When the proceedings began with one of Granville's own duets, he was a great musician, he signed his name G Sharp, played on his own, played on his very own English horns that had been preserved in, aptly enough, the Horniman Museum in London. The centuries that one heard Granville's music in the church, played on Granville's own instruments, the centuries just folded in on themselves in a kind of quantum way, and we all fell right through the kind of wormhole of time. So it seemed, or maybe it was just a very sweet English summer day, we were not so much commemorating a moment as virtually reenacting it, rather in the way in which the idealist philosopher R.G. Collingwood believed all history had, in some sense, to be imaginatively or performatively reenacted before it could be analytical interpretation. In any case, anybody who does think that a race history of the British has gone from being a marginal to a constitutive element in the discussion and the narrative about what it means to be part of a nation would have been reassured by the ubiquitousness and intensity of the commemorations in Britain this year. At times, particularly in March, when the bill to abolish the slave trade went through Parliament in, in, March, to, in March 1807, it seemed there wasn't very much else going on. There was a day of resistance and remembrance at the British Museum, free to anybody, lots of readings it found, yours truly again, very movingly for me, reading Thomas Clarkson and Olayuda Equiano to um, a room as full as this one, but of 11 and 12-year-olds from schools in South London in particular. Much grander utterances by the likes of the multicultural great and good, Wally Shoyinka, naturally. A great exhibition this year of documents in Westminster Hall, where the great cases involving forcibly deported ex-escaped slaves have been heard by Lord Chief Justice Mansfield. Under that same roof now, um, people were able to see the boxes used by Thomas Clarkson on his campaigns of peregrination to convert people to the cause of abolitionism around Britain. The shackles, the chains, 
coffee and carob beans demonstrating what would be the fruits of uh, free labor in Sierra Leone, the famous Am I Not a Man and a Brother Wedgwood Medallion, and so on. All this in this year provoked discussions about the commercial self-reproduction of abolitionist rhetoric. There was, uh, again, uh, children were made aware of the famous print of the slave ship Brooks with its sardine can-packed African bodies that made its way into thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of homes around the country in the late 1780s and 1790s. Two new museums of slavery, one in Liverpool, another about to open in the Docklands in London, and my own book about the fate of the escaped slaves siding with British in the Revolutionary War, Rough Crossings, sort of monster that wouldn't die, really, that became a play and a, a BBC film. So, now this saturation coverage of this event, I think, isn't to be explained merely as an act of historical piety. I certainly hope not, and I think that's not the case. The tone of the proceedings, and this is also good news, I think, for the fate of historical memory, has been clamorously self-interrogatory, not simply a matter of whites congratulating themselves on the benevolence and goodness and wisdom. I think the writer, black writer Marcus Woods, a bit extreme and misguided in reading Thomas Clarkson's description of the torture and restraint in instruments used on the plantations. Woods says, oh, this is itself sensationalist and an exercise in Sardian kind of relish. I think that's really not right. It's, I think he probably is right in looking at that famous print of the slaver with its sort of, in, you know, it, it, almost indivisible packed bodies on it as something which could have reinforced the image of the black as helpless cargo rather than the self-determining historical agent which from shipboard insurrections and slave rebellions and the proactive role of slaves in the great escape to the British in 1775 Blacks certainly were. This is the moment where uh, um, the, those who had been slaves take control or attempt to take control of their own destiny and is all the more moving for it. So this has been an occasion in Britain this year for fruitful fierceness. Inevitable issues of reparations and apologies have came up and I was asked when I went on radio and sometimes on television, you know, what my position about a formal apology was, and for what it's worth, actually. I mean, I just thought, well, you know, if a perfectly nice German came up to me and said, really sorry about Auschwitz, <laughs> I would say, it doesn't cut it, really. It's, it's sort of absurdly not to the point. I sort of feel, in some ways, actually, the enormity and atrocity of what happened in the slave trade is only pathetically and inadequately um, not absolved, but even engaged with by a form of, you know, saying sorry. Most important, I think, though, the commemorations have been an occasion on which to ask serious questions about the relationship of race to the mythic narratives of national solidarity in Britain. But in all of this enormously vocal memory of all the waves of sound and fury, one rather astonishing fact has been almost completely ignored in Britain. The fact is the following, that President Thomas Jefferson signed an act prohibiting the slave trade to the United States and by American traders into law three weeks before George III gave the British equivalent his formal royal assent. It's often assumed, and was indeed in print this year, that abolition of the slave trade went into effect on January the 1st, 1808. 
almost a year after the act went, went through Parliament. But again, that's to confuse American with British action. It was Jefferson's law that became law, uh, Jefferson's Act that became law on that date. The British Act did not actually take effect till two months later, on March the 1st, 1808. But you can't actually really blame the Brits for overlooking this since the commemoration has gone almost entirely missing on this side of the pond. If you Google it, you'll find virtually nothing at all, not even the commemorative stamp, which I was told last year was planned in an age of universal email about the most exiguous form of tribute you can imagine in any case. So, you know, a sort of abolition of the slave trade in the United States gets sort of, you know, folded into those sort of, sort of grim manila envelopes in the post office along with wild flowers of Maryland or, you know banjo masters of the 1920s or whatever. In fact, when Charles Wrangell, the New York congressman and one of the leaders of the Black Caucus, proposed a motion of commemoration and congratulation, it was to the British Parliament, not his own legislature, um, that he sent it. And, you know, this seems to me just absolutely amazing. But perhaps it recalls the fact that in 1808 itself, congregations of black churches in Pennsylvania sang anthems to the British abolition of 1807, hoping, quote, that Columbia's chains would follow, not noticing that they in fact already had. When the General Assembly of the United Nations this year formally marked the anniversary on March the 26th, the American delegate, just appointed by the Bush administration, Richard Terrell, a white career diplomat um, whose Senate confirmation preceded the anniversary by nine days, managed actually to fail me to mention the United States had actually done likewise. Great start, Dickie, to the new job. <laughs> so the dramatic contrast between contemporary fanfares and arguments and alarms on one side and the deafening silence on the other, as I take it to be, and I'm happy to be corrected about this impression. I would really be happy to be corrected. This, it seems to me, repeats the pattern actually set 200 years ago. Researching the debates on the subject in the Ninth Congress in late 1806 and through February 1807, the historian Matthew Mason noticed just how much the dog failed to bark in the night. President Jefferson, who's schizophrenic as always on matters of race, had introduced the motion on December the 2nd, 1806, had in fact been arguing for abolition of the slave trade since 1774. Yet, when it actually went on, apart from a fulsome and wholehearted endorsement of the measure on his presidential address of that year, referred to it as Mason found very little, almost not at all, in his letters and private papers, and even in his correspondence with members of Congress. What was on his mind, and that of Congress and most of the American press, was something they thought much more important, the capture of Aaron Burr and the unraveling of his conspiracy to detach the Western territories from the Republic, as well as the interference with American commerce posed by the mutual commercial wars of the French and British empires. Attendance in the House of Representatives and the Senate when the abolition of the slave trade was discussed was thin and the debates themselves seldom turned on first principles. Although northern spokesmen like Barnabas Bidwell of Massachusetts and John Smiley of Pennsylvania did their best in that respect. Rather, the discussions skirted uh, 
ethics for intensive examination of the details of enforcement that might happen should the act pass, which it did. That, in the details, is where the most contentious difficulties would lie. It tells you a lot about the atmosphere in which the American law was passed. It was all very well for Congress, for complicated and usually pragmatic reasons, to mouth its agreement in principle to enact to abolish the slave importation. This had been a staple piety of American rhetoric since the 1770s in both North and South. But the devil was definitely, as I say, in the details. Like the following. Was illegal trading in humans to be a felony or a misdemeanor? with very different penalties prescribed as a result. Barnabas Bidwell declared the, it tantamount to murder as well as man-stealing, his words, and wanted capital penalties. Fat chance of that happening. Then what was to be the fate of slaves taken from apprehended ships after the law was passed? Were they to be automatically emanumited or emancipated? Or treated, in effect, by the government as contraband property and simply resold. That possibility profoundly shocked Northern abolitionist congressmen, since it would, they say, quite rightly, turn the government into a receiver and, by extension, implicate the good faith of the United, gov United States government in slave trading itself. Would the measure cover domestic coastal traffic between the states? On all these issues, as you'd expect, representatives from the lower deep south, especially Georgia and South Carolina, were intransigent. Government interference with interstate trade was said to be an extension of federal power so gross as to be more or less a violation of the Constitution, at one point provoking from John Randolph an explicit threat in 1806 to break the Union. If the Constitution is to be violated, let us secede. We're just 30 years from the Declaration of Independence. Round one of the Civil War is starting, barely having actually begun to stabilize the fragile constitutional union. Randolph's threat was precisely the opposite of Edmund Burke's threat to the British Parliament in 1791, which, in which he said, if Parliament failed to heed the expressed anger of its constituents by not outlawing the trade, then Parliament, said Burke, might as well be abolished. It's extraordinary. As for the notion that smugglers in the United States would be treated as felons liable for capital penalty, Randolph replied, no Southerner would ever assent to the execution of one of their number for committing an act that might be considered a political evil but never a crime. And since, of course, the vast majority of Ill likely illegal trading ventures would take place in southern ports and in southern waters, the outlook for enforcement was dim, especially uh, since after banning the slave trade, South Carolina, Charleston, huge draw for the possibility of, of smuggling. But South Carolina had made it legal again in 1803, just three years before the debate began. Most ominously, representatives of the Lower South set their face against any possibility of slaves freed from captured ships after the law came into effect, being set at large into their own slave societies. 
That, they said, would kindle the fires of insurrection, to quote one of their number. And they had in mind the part they thought free blacks had played in slave rebellions in Jamaica and in Saint-Domingue, in, in Santo Domingo, in Haiti. Remember that from the 1790s onwards, states in the Lower South and some in the Upper South, um, and, and some of the Atlantic states too, as a matter of fact, have been doing their utmost to rid themselves of troublesome populations of free blacks, to encourage them to emigrate, or to patrol their numbers through registration. That was the great issue for in some sense, which sort of overlooked the whole matter of whether or not the slave trade itself would be legal or illegal. This sort of problematic population. For Jefferson, famously, he could only think about the eventual emancipation of large numbers of the black population, supposing they would be physically got rid of from the United States, preferably by colonization. To allow what was feared to be a substantial new population was for Southern alarmists in the House, like Peter Early of Georgia, who later became governor, was, he said, an evil greater than slavery itself. There was much talk of the depravity, larceny, and shiftlessness that would be spread by such a population. The only recourse in such circumstances, Early said, was, quote, self-defense. The gentleman will understand me, we must either get rid of them or they of us. There is no alternative. Not one of them would be left alive in a year. Would Congress, he implied, really wish to incite slaughter and race war? It's important to remember, I think, that many of the most belligerent critics of the fine print of Jefferson's Act, or rather those who wanted to amend it into harmlessness, were actually either Virginians like John Randolph or Virginians by origin like Peter Early who'd moved down from Virginia to Georgia, even though he came to speak passionately and truculently for the Deep South. What the debate, such as it was at the end of 1806 and very early in, in January and February in 1807 implied, was a fracture within the leadership of the South and not always just along regional lines, many of the more punitive elements of Jefferson's Act were thwarted by nervous northerners in alliance with their southern counterparts who worried about whether or not something this clear cut would actually break the Union. There was a good deal of uncomfortable fence-sitting. James Madison endorsed the Act, providing he said it did not cause too much, quote, inconvenience. Not least, of course, because Jefferson and Madison, not to mention their faithful correspondent in Massachusetts, former President Adams, well knew the price of preserving the Republic as it had been during the Revolutionary War and during the constitutional debates was deferring to the Lower South on both the trade and a fortiori on the institution of slavery itself. The decision of the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and 88 to postpone the possibility of legislation. They agreed in principle it'd be nice for the slave trade to be abolished. And one reason they did so, by the way, of course, was because there was an alarm about simply the demographic numbers, the number of blacks in the South causing the potential for some sort of insurrection. But what was com the commitment was made during the Constitutional Convention that there would be no legislation on the matter for 20 years. That had been the condition of making that more perfect union remotely possible. 
And there were some in 1807 who were furious at Jefferson for bringing forward the end of the moratorium on legislation by a mere year, even though the law itself would not come into effect until the, the, the right date, until 1808. It may be that Thomas Jefferson knew that two decades of suspended prohibition, the thing just out there in procrastination in aspect, had been used to import more slaves into the South than at any other time in American history. So we have this poisonous paradox about the early decades of American history in which once the principle of abolishing the slave trade had been agreed, actually triggered the biggest boom in the slave trade during that grace period before legislation could happen. Jefferson certainly knew that with or without the abolition of the trade, American posterity would eventually pay a very heavy price in that procrastination. His abolition act was, for all the fineness of its intention, essentially a measure of damage control for the life of the new nation and it implied the stable containment of slavery rather than the first step in its liquidation. Surely no American statesman had a more protean conscience about all this. Jefferson's restless intellect could articulate unequivocally the absoluteness of equality, the opening of the Declaration of Independence, at the same time as his private prejudice subscribed to the mental inferiority of Africans, a point which you know, the great Enlightenment philosopher refused ever to go back on. The Enlightenment man in him persisted with the abolition of the slave trade, even as the pragmatist labored to neutralize the threat to the Union it would represent, even if he had to shred its force and substance um, in deference to the objections of the South. Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration of Independence had, of course, included a paragraph of ferocious denunciation that you probably all know. The slave trade, the paragraph read, was, quote, cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty and the persons of a distant people, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, incur or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. The paragraph, of course, had been duly stricken from the final draft of the Declaration, as Jefferson wrote, in complaisance to South Carolina and Georgia. But Jefferson had, in any case, have made this one of the colonists' grievances against, grievances against Britain by blaming the slave trade on the king. The warfare, as he put it, of the Christian, in capital letters, the Christian king, sardonic capitals, of Britain. Responsibility then between the, for the glaring inconsistency between the Declaration of Independence's rhetoric, the self-evident truth that all men are created equal, and the fact of slavery was conveniently displaced onto the hapless person of the offending monarch and his culpable ancestors. Nothing to do with us Americans, good heavens no. Once the war started, Jefferson felt, the king and his courtiers, as Jefferson liked to call them, the ministers, were compounding that evil by what George Washington called the diabolical scheme of fomenting armed insurrection among the slaves by promising them their liberty if they serve the crown during the conflict. That's the subject of rough crossings, Lord Dunmore and other declarations of promising freedom to 
escaped slaves from rebel plantations, only from rebel plantations, should they serve the crown? And we now think there are quarrels between people like Cassandra Pribus and myself about the numbers involved, but we certainly know that between 40 and 50,000 uh, slaves left their plantations to try and take the British up on that bargain. The deep uneasiness of the part of many of the founding fathers, Adams, Franklin, and Patrick Henry, that the social reality of the American lives and fortunes was at odds with the professions of the Declaration would never actually go away. It's to their credit, I believe, that it did not. But they knew that their equivocation would one day have a painful and perhaps even bloody reckoning. It's a matter of poignancy, as Pauline Mayer um, pointed out in her wonderful book, Patriotic Scripture on the Declaration of Independence, that subsequent pragmatists like Stephen Douglas contorted themselves in knots to turn the original proclamation of natural equality into what Douglas liked to represent as a utopian ideal rather than the social fact on which the republic was to be founded. It was said in these later parsings that, well, equality was to be understood as between whites or that it was an exemplary paradigm. Distinct, much was made of distinctions between equality of origins and equality of outcomes. Nonetheless, as, as Pauline Mayer rightly says, the young Abraham Lincoln, even in his law practice days in Springfield, for Lincoln, Jefferson's original dictum, all men uh, are created equal, meant precisely what it said. In some fundamental sense, then, directly tackling this issue in 1806 and 1807 in the United States was to toy dangerously with what was perceived as a very fragile union. To add sectional bitterness to the divisions that already beset the American polity between Federalists and Republicans over the extent of central power, and to do it at a time when the country was beset with dangers from abroad and at home was to threaten serious harm. No wonder Jefferson conceded or allowed Congress to concede all those southern amendments to his act. Slaving after January 8 would be punished by fines and imprisonment. When Barnabas Bidwell tried to preempt the possibility that the government's appropriation of seized slaves would not result in their sale, his amendment was defeated in the House by the Speaker's casting vote. The Speaker, of course, came from North Carolina. To appease the South, Congress restricted its ban on domestically shipped slaves to vessels under 40 tons. Most slaving vessels were a lot bigger than that. But even that 40-ton line moved John Randolph to make that threat of secession. Needless to say, there was no discussion either in the government or indeed in Congress about what sort of naval enforcement was going to happen, if any. The American Navy, such as it was, had its hands full, keeping American wars free of privateers, dealing, of course, in the Mediterranean with Barbary Corsairs, or with French and British ships taking prizes without taking these further sententious duties on itself. Historically, then, the abolition of the slave trade in the United States pointed in every respect to a future of disunion, of national disintegration, an accounting to be paid in blood. And that, I suppose, is why there's been so little disposition to celebrate it or commemorate it in this anniversary year. 
maybe there's something else at work here in some larger sense about the selectivity of public memory in this country. The tendency, especially at the time right now, of what should we call it, military perplexity, to use history for consolation. I was reminded of this by watching some episodes of Ken Burns' I fear egregiously titled documentary series, The War. There were other chaps actually involved than uh, Americans. An immense exercise in elegiac self-congratulation. It seems to say, those programs, and they're beautifully made, of course, as usual, whatever our troubles now, there was at least one war that was fought for indisputably noble no motives, and which by and large turned out well. The consolatory and redemptive payoff, history as lullaby, is unmistakable. But that's not what the first authentically critical historian of our tradition, yours and mine, ladies and gentlemen, Thucydides, had in mind for us at all. Thucydides, you'll remember, was a general who'd taken part in the conflict he chronicled. And that made him not an elegist, but a gadfly for the complacent. I'm always struck by the fact that passages from the Peloponnesian Wars that usually get used in American core curricula almost always turn on Pericles' funeral oration, hymning the liberty for which Athenians would sacrifice themselves, a text which may be the only compromised passage in that history since Thucydides, who was a rebarbative critic of what he thought was Herodotus's playing fast and loose with the sources, but Thucydides conceded that his version of Pericles was based on the report of someone who might have heard the dear leader. The real telos, though, but it works as a kind of crystallization of morale for the fate of contemporary democracy, hence its cherished place in the core curriculum. But the real telos of the whole book, of course, you know, is quite different. It's a damning indictment of the Athenian imperial hubris that leads them to Syracuse and to catastrophe. Syracuse, Sicily, that is, rather than... We're not talking football here, although perhaps we are. The march to self-destruction is the point of that great book, and it immediately establishes as a birth text Western history as an exercise in merciless self-criticism. It's temper cautionary, it's intelligent, skeptical, it's payoff usually tragic. History for Thucydides and for, I think, the great figures of his posterity is the memory of comeuppance. It's integrity and wisdom bound up with its honesty and its abhorrence of patriotic self-ingratiation. Thucydides' history, our history, is nobody's cheerleader. Which brings me, inevitably, to my own countrymen across the other side of the pond, and a place at the moment of abolition in British cultural memory. Now, the British, I can say, are not at all exempt from the kind of patriotic self-congratulation, history as moral reassurance that I've implied is an issue in the popularity of some American history, whether on television or in Books about the Founding Fathers. Founding Fathers also, you know, they're, they're great books. I particularly love Ron Chernow's on, on Hamilton. Um, there have been some marvelous books about the Founding Fathers, but it seems to me that too is, has kind of an imploring quality to it, really, that we may be um, 
less than altogether joyful about our present leadership in Washington or, or the leadership that preceded it or leadership might succeed it. But once, by God, once in the 1770s, we had leaders who were wise, strong, thoughtful, and victorious. In the British case, it's, it's, it, there is something sort of perverse about the British national memory and its kind of embrace of cock-ups, as we say in Britain. Disasters like Dunkirk are likely to be meat and drink for writers as Trafalgar and the Battle of Waterloo and D-Day. From Dr. Johnson's famous epigram about patriotism being the last refuge of a scoundrel to the ingrained skepticism against excessive hero worship in British history, it's also true that the, uh, I think the cautionary temper, the cautionary temper, not necessarily a tragic one, has served British commemoration reasonably well. Um, so although there was certainly an element this year of back-patting going on in the commemorations of abolition in Britain, um, especially since the abolition, unlike America, led to uh, the slave trade, would eventually lead in 1833 to the abolition of slavery itself as an institution in the British Empire. Um, it's also true that this year in Britain has been an occasion for looking into the glass of time darkly in particular for a re-engagement in the debate over the relationship of slavery and the sugar economy to economic power in the 18th century in the British Empire. But what's been impressive, I think, though, is the degree to which that debate has not simply been a reheating of Eric Williams's Capitalism and Slavery, the text which half a century ago attacked what Williams thought of as the insufferable condescension of abolitionist hagiography, noble white men doing things to passive blacks. He's right about that, I think. Instead, Williams proposed it had actually, and this I think he was wrong about, most historians do now, I think it's presumptuous, but uh, it may be presumptuous for me to say this. Williams said abolitionism had come about as an act of economic convenience, or indeed had been necessitated by a structural shift from a declining sugar economy to laissez-faire manufacturing. Now, that position of Williams, that it could only happen when there was nothing to lose, in fact, it was very important to sort of liberate labor into Adam Smith-like ideology of individualism, the better for capitalism to gobble up the working class. This has been a position that Seymour Drescher and other scholars have attacked with such empirical, empirically devastating effect that it's very difficult now to contest the view that when abolition of the slave trade happens in Britain, it does not happen during a period of decline, but it happens actually in effect at the zenith of the profitability of the trade. It would be rather as if you know, we discovered that all microchips were sort of being made by sweaty child labor somewhere in Malaysia, and everybody decided to really you know, no longer use computers or something. I mean, it was an act of, of supreme economic irrationality. And it's precisely because the instrumentalist argument from social expediency can't be sustained that the bicentennial in Britain prompted historians and the common culture, I think, more generally to engage again with abolition as a possibly actual moral act, one in which it might be conceivable that the protagonists meant what they said, especially when figures like Granville Sharp, the archdeacon's son, after all, and Thomas Clarkson, who'd been intended for the ministry of the church and who took up, both of them, abolitionism as a kind of Pauline conversion, listening to sermons when they invoked Christianity. 
The same is true for Quakers and figures like the erstwhile parish priest from St. Kitts, James Ramsey, who kick-started abolitionism because they felt it was above all an affront to the basic assumptions of Christian theology at the indivisible and universal admission of all sinners, all sinners indivisibly, to God's pardoning grace, to salvation, to the whole point of the Christian, of Christian theology. It, it forced, I think, British scholars and, and, as I say, the culture at large to think again about religion perhaps as a constitutive force in social change rather than an expression of something else. There's, there's a lot to be said about this, and I, I, I don't want to do it now. I'd be happy to, to go further about this. I am struck, though, actually, about how pathetically badly prepared I and many of my generation were growing up in the 60s and doing hardcore in sort of analyst social science-driven history. Unless you were working on the Protestant Reformation or the Cromwellian period of the Puritan Civil War, even then, I think, under the influence of social science, scholars were wrestling with the notion that religious profession was some form of epiphenomenon, some extension of something else, class relations, property, power, politics, was not actually about the kind of cut and thrust of religious convictions themselves. I mean, I, I remember, I was saying at lunch, I remember my school teacher um, who bore an almost creepy likeness to Oudon's Basta Voltaire and therefore taught about the Enlightenment all the time saying to us in 1958, well, boys, we don't know what the 20th century, rest of the 20th century holds, but we know this for sure. Um, organized religion and the nation states have no part to play, so much for the brilliant prognostications of historians. <laughs> so we've had to, some of us have had to kind of relearn our sense of what actually the speech acts of religion and the relationship between action and belief are about. I mean, ridiculously naive to confess that, but certainly true in my case. And, and I think the essential reason why the commemoration of abolition in Britain became so much of a rhetorical event in British national culture is because the debate performed the same function, who are we, what brings us together, what could possibly force us apart? It played that role 200 years ago. Linda Colley, in her wonderful book, Britons, has written about the role that the agitation against the slave trade played in creating a new kind of national politics, a new kind of national sense of solidarity. One which included, as political actors, uh, hitherto excluded constituencies like women, to which one also needs to add British blacks in the persons of people like Ottobar Kuguano and Oluyuda Equiano, who were active lobbyists and propagandists for the cause up and down the country, and in Equiano's case, actually stood in the lobby of the House of Commons delivering pamphlets, which he'd written himself, or sometimes with Granville Sharp, to members going in. I'd want to push the argument actually a lot further than Linda Colley. And in contrast to the American sense that being against the slave trade was potentially a nation breaker, I'd want to argue that in Britain it was a nation maker. Perhaps along with the romanticism of the past, the rediscovery of history that took place during the wars against the French, the campaign against the slave trade was the single most powerful force in the remaking or the reformation of Britain as an expressly Christian state. And this was paradoxically the fruit of defeat. 
American victory won at the price of not pushing the contradiction between the Declaration of Independence and social reality to the point of threatening the Union made a powerful incentive for letting that particular sleeping dog lie for at least 20 years. In Britain, defeat led to soul-searching. In the first instance, on the part of critics of the American War, like Granville Sharp, Edmund Burke, and Charles James Fox, Seymour Drescher actually thinks this is wrong, but he's wrong about this. You only have to look, actually, in Granville Sharp's tremendously self-mortifying, partly because, actually, a lot of the people who became parliamentary agitators for against the slave trade had been critics, actually, of the American War. So it was very natural for Granville Sharp and for Charles James Fox to feel that defeat was sort of a kind of providential judgment for not, not taking care of um, uh, an issue for them which was an absolute moral evil. The sense in which Hanoverian Britain was a new Nineveh, or indeed a Sodom, punished by the Almighty for its manifold sins, its corruption, its profanity, but above all its inhumanity to fellow men, men who'd been reduced to chattels and beasts of burden, was, a, was an absolutely commonplace refrain in the rhetoric of the British abolitionists. Whereas the fate of the United States, its existence, depended on not grasping the nettle, the destiny of the British Empire in the minds of these figures was conditional on it doing precisely that. The difference was that while in the United States the opponents of that view were structurally indispensable to the survival of the Union in the shape of Carolina, the Carolinas and Georgia, in Britain, after the unprecedented mobilization of public opinion, those opponents could be marginalized as an alien entity, the West India lobby, and by no less than a succession of prime ministers, from William Pitt to his cousin, Lord Grenville, under whose aegis the abolition of the trade eventually came about. Pitt died in January 1806. In striking contrast to Congress skirting, doing its little kind of pirouettes around the big moral issues of national self-definition, those in the British Parliament, especially in June 1806, which was the debates, it was kind of warm up to the possibility of making sure that the act could go through the House of Lords, which had been the problem 12 times after Wilberforce had introduced it. So there was a debate in the summer of 1806 on the declaration that, quote, the slave trade is contrary to humanity, justice, and sound policy. Those debates were nothing but about first moral principles precisely because parliamentarians knew they were under attack from reformers out in the country, especially in the Midlands and North, demonizing them as the unclean temple of old corruption. So the Houses of Commons and Lords, and it was the conversion of the Lords which really clinched it, were transformed into a rhetorical theater for the redefinition of what the legislature was, and by extension, the unwritten British Constitution king in parliament, the law, the church, all in this rhetorical theater working together to extirpate the, the abomination. It's a bit of a problem with the, with the crown because we know what the king thought, but certainly vocal princes, the Duke of Clarence, who was to become William IV, was fiercely in favor of preserving the slave trade. His younger brother, the Duke of Gloucester, however, was an abolitionist, so you could pick your member of royalty. 
Charles James Fox, who was junior to Lord Grenville in the new government, but a senior spokesman in the House of Commons as Foreign Secretary, began his introductory speech in that great summer of 1806 with encomia not just to William Wilberforce, but to his most famous political enemies, both dead, conveniently, William Pitt and Edmund Burke. Fox was shortly to follow in September. He died, and he made the point often, both to friends and in public, that if he, he wanted to achieve one great act before which he, by which he would always be remembered, it would be this one. Um, waxing magnanimous, Fox quoted Edmund Burke, quote, to deal and traffic not in the labor of men, but in men themselves, is to devour the root instead of enjoying the fruit of human diligence. The 1791 speech of Pitt, who had been Fox's bitterest foe in exactly that year of the French Revolution, Fox said now, later, about something else, was, quote, the most powerful and convincing eloquence that ever adorned these walls. A speech, not a vague and showy ornament. And that's extremely sweet, because that's exactly, of course, what Fox himself was always accused of, of being a gorgeous windbag. So it's a sort of sweet, which everybody would have picked up on, sweet uh, attempt at self-deprecation. Pitt's speech was not a vague and showy ornament, but a solid and irresistible argument founded on a detail of indisputable facts and unquestionable calculations, which you could construe as Fox saying it was great but boring. Um, but, but Fox's sincere effort at this moment clearly was to summon the ghosts of the past, masters of the House of Commons, in a demonstration of cross-factional unity on this one great matter. A succession of absolutely astonishing speeches followed, including two of them, one by the one-armed hero of the American War, Bannister Tarleton, and General Isaac Gascoigne, both at Liverpool, um, in favor of sustaining the, the slave trade. Uh, speeches of ferocious intransigence. Um, uh, but it was left to the brilliant young Solicitor General, Samuel Romilly, to be the most uncompromising of all about what actually was at stake, which was nothing less, said Romilly, the integrity of Parliament and the honor of the nation. Romilly upbraided the two houses of Parliament for delaying, in other words, he does exactly what no one dared to say in Congress, he attacks procrastination, delaying as long as they had since Wilberforce's original motion was introduced in 1791 to come to a more ethically proper conclusion. Like other orators in the House of Commons, Romilly dismissed the argument that slavery and the slave traffic had existed in all cultures and societies since antiquity as being no reason at all why Britain should not nonetheless step forth, he implied, especially in the light of American hypocrisy, to embrace the mantle of moral dignity and to end it. In the Lords, Bailby Porteous, the Bishop of London, one of the staunchest of the new abolitionist bishops, made the point that to argue from custom, from is to ought, one could as easily justify the Chinese practice, he said, of mass exposure of infants to die because it had been done generation after generation. 
neither the fate of the Atlantic economy or of Bristol and Liverpool, these cities which had grown to great prosperity in the 18th century on the back of the slave trade, Romilly said, nor the possibility that abolition might be a gift of the French or the Spanish empires at a time we were at war with them, could possibly justify perpetuating a malum in se, an unconscionable evil in itself. The year 1796 had been set by the House as, quote, the utmost limit allowed for the existence of that most abominable and disgraceful traffic, and yet it still subsists. It was the fault of the Lords, he said, the act had not gone through earlier. He was correct on that. Quote, I can very well understand that nations as well as individuals may be guilty of the most immoral acts from their not having the courage to inquire into their nature and consequences, but, of course, he went on, in 1789, Parliament had launched a great inquiry, and it was, quote, by a great body of evidence established that the African trade is carried on by rapine, robbery, and murder, and by fermenting wars. Thus are unhappy beings, in order to supply this traffic in human blood, torn from their families. Now, sir, after all this has been proved and after it's been ascertained by such indisputable evidence that this trade cannot be carried on without the most iniquitous practices, murder, that wars are fermented to support it, that most disgusting cruelties attend it in the passage of this unhappy part of our species from their native home to a place of slavery, that they are there subjected to a cruel and perpetual bondage. I do say this trade ought not to be suffered to continue for a single hour. It is a stain upon our national reputation and ought to be wiped away. When it was claimed in refutation that the merchants of Liverpool and Bristol would have to be compensated, Romilly replied, ought the debts of the people of England to be paid in blood with the blood of the people of Africa. The people of England are not to consent. They should be carried on in their name, a system of blood and murder, because we must make some compensation to some individuals. That was also the nub of Wilberforce's argument, that the issue spoke, quote, to the inestimable advantages of a free constitution, emphasis really on genuinely free. When others said the timing was poor because of Britain's involvement in the wars with Napoleon and his allies in a potential war with America, Wilberforce, and this was while Napoleon had established a camp, an invasion army on, at Boulogne, Wilberforce said, if ever there was a period in which this country, circumstanced as we are, had an opportunity of setting a glorious example to all the other nations of the earth, giving a proof of the inestimable advantages of a free constitution, of an enlightened policy, of all the blessings providence has bestowed on us, that the present is that moment. We ought to hail it with joy as giving us an opportunity to show the world we are not a sordid race looking to interest and pursuing it by the oppression of others. We're a nation governed by the rules of justice, dictated by wisdom. No society any more than any individual can be long upheld in prosperity upon any other principle. The subtext of all that flamboyance and the targets of righteousness were, of course, in Wilberforce's mind, in Grenville's mind, in Fox's mind, in Romilly's mind, the Americans and the French, who paraded their ostensible devotion to freedom before the world while countenancing servitude 
and despotism. Napoleon had reintroduced the slave trade in 1802. The declaratory motion was passed by large majorities in both houses and the final bill the following February by 283 to just 16 against, unlike the delicate balancing act in Congress. And they testify, I think, to a conver genuine conversionary moment of a peace with the evangelical reform movement that was attempting to create that new Christ Christian empire, grounded, as Romilly had said, on virtue rather than interest or rather through strenuous attempts to redefine the national interest so it's squared with evangelical notions of Christian virtue and popularly romantic notions of English rather than British history. This romantic notion of what England had been and what Britain, the new nation, Ireland just having been omitted, would become, was the driving force of its principal campaigners. Granville Sharp had taken up the cause of abducted blacks in the streets of London in the 1760s because he believed, as I say, the plight of slaves was an affront to the universal admission of men to God's forgiving grace. Sharp also believed with almost as much religious conviction in the sanctity of the English common law, by which he held from an obscure Elizabethan case, the air of England is too pure for slaves to breathe or that once upon the shores of England, all men and women had indivisible access to the king's justice. Hence his tournament with Lord Chief Justice Mansfield over the status of those escaped slaves that had been recaptured by former masters with the intention of forcible deportation and sale in the West Indies. Sharp's campaigns in the 1770s, fortified by his correspondence with American abolitionists, very, very important to Granville Sharp, like Benjamin Rush and Anthony Benazet, were a reformer's tour of the unwritten British constitution. After the law came the established church, whose indif indifference initially to the accursed thing, as Sharp called it, the slave trade and slavery, appalled him. Bishops and archbishops were deluged by memoranda, booklets, and personal visitations until they capitulated and were converted. And this breakout from the Quaker and dissenting base of abolitionism into the established church hierarchy was the great turning point, the church, that turned the lords from resistance to acceptance. After the prelates of the church, Sharp wanted to recover what he imagined in his Gothic romance to be primitive forms of English democracy, the frank pledge elections of householders to local officers and so on, up the chain of governance to a reformed and morally cleansed national representation. It wasn't just Granville Sharp, but the saints of the Clapham sect, Zachary Macaulay, Henry Thornton, Hannah Moore, Wilberforce, who saw the campaign against the slave trade as the first act in a great national purification. After the act went through, it was famously Wilberforce turned to Henry Thornton and said, well, Henry, what shall we abolish now? And the answer was, in the first instance, the lottery. But attacks were launched at that time not just on electoral corruption, but all manner of social evils, prostitution, climbing boys, demon gin, prompted by Malachi Postlethwaite, an erstwhile propagandist for the Royal African Company earlier in the 18th century, who'd become a critic of the trade, and then by Adam Smith, and finally by Quaker merchants and bankers, Samuel Hoare and Joseph Woods, a debate was joined as to what was and what was not a moral form of commerce. In their campaigns to persuade supporters to refrain from using slave-made products, 
these men made much of the addictive and therefore enslaving quality of tobacco and rum, corrupting the freedom of the consumer as much as it was purchased by the blood of those who'd produced it. The anti-saccharite, the anti-sugar campaign was the first instance in modern politics of bringing slavery issue into the household. And it worked extraordinarily precisely because it turned on its head the truism that women's fear was the governance of the house. In this case, women's fear, domesticity, presupposed politics. And this is the first moment that women, as Linda Collier has rightly said, en masse are drawn into a huge petitioning campaign of action. Now, if all of this seems marginal to the main act of what Britain was about at this moment, the transformation of the country into an industrial and military empire, the judgment that this is a marginal, quirky, strange Christian moment that didn't kind of work out in the way the evangelicals wanted, that seems to me an anachronistic projection back from social science perspective. What the campaign to redefine British national identity as Christian virtue turned on was as much bound up with moral judgment as the Protestant Reformation and the 17th century Puritan moment that was its legatee. The evangelical moment was the descendant of both of those earlier reformations. And it was, of course, the nursery of Victorian self-belief that this generation had, at this moment in the life of the parliament, managed to reconcile the demands of money, power, and Christian morals. That we might think them deluded doesn't in any way diminish the force of their coherence. The fact, too, that after the Irish Union of 1801, Britain was an indivisible, somewhat almost indivisible constitution. Ireland did have special constitutional provisions, made the reformers believe what was enacted in Westminster would hold good for the country, the country now no longer being England but Britain. The centralization of the British state worked to the optimism of reform just as the confederated nature of the American constitution worked against it. There was also the sense of some of the reformers, the Liverpool radical William Roscoe, for example, or the artist Turner's Yorkshire friend, Walter Fawkes, that they were in the business, in this great crusade, as some of them called it, of replacing an oligarchy with a more truly representative polity, as they sought to make Parliament responsive to a mass petitioning movement in which one in three adult males of voting age declared themselves for abolition. If in the United States it might be argued with the Bill of Rights, the work of state-making had been, for the moment, done, in Britain, everything was still to be done. But there was, of course, one important respect in which the British reformers of 1807 were no more certain than their American counterparts whether the abolition of the trade was the harbinger of emancipation or whether it preempted serious consideration of it, of the liquidation of slavery itself. In America, the horror at freeing blacks from captured slavers was in part a matter of precaution against insurrection, but also because politicians from the lower south argued it would lead to unrealizable expectations of emancipation. Both Jefferson and Charles James Fox, on the other side of the Atlantic, were at pains to deny any such thing was anticipated, much less taken for granted. Fox went out of his way to treat any imputation that getting rid of the slave trade would mean 
early emancipation as an anti-abolitionist canard. Even Wilberforce notoriously was a lukewarm gradualist for the moment who believed that prior property rights could not be interfered with and, if there, and there had to be a period of education, as he put it, before slaves could be trusted with their liberty. Only Granville Sharp, to his dying day, and the Clarkson brothers um, became, Granville Sharp always was, immediate emancipationists. <clears throat> it was the republication of Thomas Clarkson's great history of the abolition of the trade that kick-started in the 1820s the British campaign for emancipation that would culminate in the act, getting rid of slavery in the act of 1833, and uh, in 1838 finally finishing the job. That campaign, the second campaign to get rid of slavery in the British Empire itself, as being a way, again, to remake Britain, was a transatlantic one in many respects, as historians are coming to understand. It was in London that the great International Abolitionist Congress was held in 1840, full of uh, the, 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 the great kind of uh, paladins of the American abolitionist movement, Garrison and Wendell Phillips and so on. Uh, the Abolitionist Congress was patronized by the prin co Prince Consort, Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, and it was the one for which Turner painted his notorious and doomed slave ship. It was in Britain that Uncle Tom's Cabin found its most rapturous and extensive readership in the beginning. It was in Newcastle on Tyne that Frederick Douglass found his personal emancipators. So that it was logical that the lecture tour which established Douglas as the great charismatic orator of abolitionism took place in 1845 in Ireland and in Britain. Speaking to rapt assembly rooms in the places where the Clarksons had first agitated for the abolition of the trade in blood, as they said, in Manchester and Leeds, Birmingham and London, even in Liverpool, Frederick Douglass imagined a British empire that lived up to its promises. And since 1838, and beneath the ensign of the Royal Navy, combed the African coasts for slavers, and therefore was the true benefactor of enslaved Americans. He exaggerated enormously the colorblind character of the British. So overwhelmed was he by being taken into Parliament to stately homes and cathedrals. Had, I think, Frederick Douglass visited the hideously racist Thomas Carlyle, he might have come away with a different opinion. But in one respect, Douglas was right. In their strenuous determination to make their own moral revolution, the saints had refused to sweep under the carpet the most repugnant and morally catastrophic issue of the day. A pity then, I think, that Douglas could not have been in Westminster Abbey with the rest of us to hear the queen yelled at by her Anglo-African subject, for that would have confirmed Douglas that for all the selective sanctimoniousness of the British, they are sometimes capable of taking the truth on the royal chin. Thank you very much. Thank you.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.